I've served on various boards throughout my lifetime. Different ages, probably the reason for doing that would be different. When I was younger, I just wanted to get involved. As I progressed on in those organizations, it was about having a seat at the table, which is very important. And that's why I would encourage everyone to get involved in in a, a board somehow. Have that seat at the table. Give your ideas. And then as I've gotten a little older, it's been uh, to give back. The beef industry has been very good to my family and myself, and it's a way I can give back. I guess what I would take away is it's been such an honor. It's one of those boards, Roger, you, you get on, you look to the left, you look to the right, and you see the quality of people that are there. And by the way, they're all volunteers. They're taking time away from their operations to be up there and do that. They don't get paid. But I look left, look right, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'm going to have to really work to keep up with these people. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Raising cattle for beef takes place from coast to coast. Now, you can have a few cows, you can have a large herd, or you can have calves in a feedlot. And while the size and type of your cattle operations are vastly different, one thing they all have in common is that law requires everyone to invest in an industry-wide organization to support that industry with research, education, and promotion. And while everyone financially supports this work, A few step up to volunteer their time and judgment to plan and oversee the work done for the benefit of all. And one of those who raises cattle and steps up to contribute leadership is my guest today on Farm to Table Talk, Jimmy Taylor. Jimmy's a cattle rancher from Oklahoma, and he's a member of the Beef Promotion Operating Committee, where he has been the chairman of the Cattlemen's Beef Board. We usually talk about raising food, and today we will also talk about how every farmer and rancher should take their turn, stepping up and giving back like Jimmy Taylor. Jimmy, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Roger, thanks for having me on. Hey, how do you feel about that introduction? I'm talking about you stepping up at the time when you're almost ready to step down. but <laughs> Well, it... it uh... It's, it's just been an honor to serve in, in that capacity that, that you're talking about. And uh, I, I don't mind uh, that description or any. It just uh, it, It's a good organization and for a good cause. And it's just been quite an honor to be a part of it. You know, one of the things, Jimmy, that strikes me is that there's more and more people that think they want to be in farming. And some of them are getting to be. And mm-hmm. increasingly, they're, they're looking at cattle. I talk to people that have had other jobs and they want to be in a grass-fed beef operation or something like that. And and I'm wondering of those folks when they get into it, if they realize that they're going to also be participating in a in a program like this. And not only that, uh, in addition to having a dollar come out of their check that's going to build the industry, but they also perhaps have an opportunity to make inputs 
get involved or volunteer for leadership or go to the meetings and, and things like that. And it strikes me, Jimmy, that we don't do a lot of orientation to people that say, well, you know, come on, jump in. You know, it's a big tent. Join in the effort. and We're going to do good things. But that means you might have to more than just raise your cattle. You, you ought to go to a few meetings and speak up and provide ideas and leadership. Right. And I think that's one of the biggest obstacles in, in getting young people or anybody involved is, is our industry is very time intensive. Uh, it's, it's nothing to put in, you know, if you're full time, put in 12 to 14 hour days. If you're doing it on a part time basis, you probably have another job that uh, you're doing during the daytime. So all those daylight hours are so important as far as getting your tasks done. But uh, it's getting them to realize that being part of organizations uh, that contribute to our industry are, are so important as far as uh, having our voice heard, uh, advocating for our industry and, and getting them to see the benefits of being involved sometimes takes a little bit of a conversation. You know, and it's also kind of hard to paint the picture. They can see what they're a part of. I mean, when you look at, at places you can have cattle these days and more and more you can you can graze cattle so if you you could be somebody that just gets 10 acres on the edge of a big city or something and put a couple cows out there and before you know it you're a beef producer and and right. to identify with uh, a a larger kind of purebred angus operation like you got in Oklahoma or or a big feedlot in the Texas Panhandle, and and you're in a suburb of Washington D.C. It, it's pretty hard for people to believe that they're all connected somehow. Right, uh, and, and and you hit the nail on the head. Our industry is very diverse as far as size of operations. Uh, I I would call my operation probably. Uh, uh, middle of the road, we're about as big as you can get and still be a mom and pop type operation. Uh, we have around 600 females. If you count the, the cows and replacement heifers, uh, we run those 600 females on 12,000 acres. And our workforce is myself, my wife, and we have one employee. But uh, we're involved in the operation uh, seven days a week and you know, those cows need to be fed. But uh, those uh, people that are that have jobs and, and might be on the edge of town, like you were talking about, they're just as much a part of the, the, the industry as, as we are. And, it, you know, they might have a little different perspective on things because they do live so close to urban areas, uh, might have uh, different ideas that, that would be very important to the conversation if they were to get involved. Now, in your time as as chairman of, of of the board, have have you gotten to a big share of the states and seen people like that all over? No, uh, been to some states, but uh, probably at meetings is where I'll I'll get to meet people, and they're uh, the, the meetings I go to are more, uh, I guess you'd call them sister organizations. Some of our contractors. Uh, have been to several of those and you meet people from all across the United States. And, uh, you know, we, we've, we've all got uh, successes and, and problems we're faces, facing and it's good to talk through those. Uh, I uh, always seem to get ideas from, from visiting with other people. 
But uh, as far as going to a lot of states, no, I, I have not done that. Been to a lot of meetings, and, and that's where I, I meet the people from across America. So if somebody's listening to this and they just start having some some calves, they've got some, they're going to graze and they want to get in it, they're contacting maybe the local extension agent and figuring out how to do it right and put some, have a few cows maybe out on, on some acreage and, and they just find themselves in the beef industry. Will they also be contributing to the checkoff program for this research and education promotion? Yes. Uh, anytime an animal is sold, a dollar is collected. So anytime they sell, whether it be at a livestock auction, uh, private treaty, or uh, say they had a, a butcher calf business, anytime an animal is sold like that, a dollar goes to the state beef council that they're in. And that state beef council will keep 50 cents of that and then send 50 cents on to the national organization which is the one that I'm involved with uh, called Cattleman's Beef Board. Yeah, uh, which is, you know, interesting. You say that name, Cattleman's Beef Board, and yet I've known that there's been many women in leadership roles. Do you ever get a little pressure on the fact that it, maybe you need to update a little bit because it suggests it's a, it's a male deal? No, that that has never come up. Uh, and, and I don't... Uh, 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 a lot of our membership is made up of, of women. I think we're around 40% of our board is, uh, is, is women. Uh, we've got a 101-member board from uh, across America. Uh, there's 42 different states represented. Uh, but uh, we're, we're diverse that way. We're also diverse in the different types of operations. We're about 60% cow-calf. Uh, 25% stalker feeder, uh, 8% dairy, and then there's uh, 7% of our board are importers. Wow. Well, we ought to use a term here. Some people listening to this aren't going to be familiar with what stalker feeder is. They can kind of guess cow-calf, I'll bet. But right. How do you explain stalker feeder? Okay, the, the stalker part of it, there's uh, when you wean the calves, and that's typically around seven months is, is the average. Some go longer, some like myself uh, go shorter. Uh, when you wean those, you don't want to take them right to the feedlot in most instances. They need, a, they need a time in their life where they can grow frame and uh, harden up a little bit. And so there's a period of months that they'll go out on grass or go out on wheat pasture and gain some weight and uh, before they go to the feed yard. So that's that's the stalker phase. The feeder phase is once they get to the feedlot, uh, they will uh, they're called feeders and they'll be at the feedlot uh, depending on how heavy they were when they went in uh, from 150 to 200 days. I think we catch most of those. Now, there's more people, it seems, that are also getting into grass-fed feeding programs, too. And so in, in those cases, they just get weaned and just keep on in grass and roughage somehow until until it's time to take them to slaughter? Right. And I don't know what uh, what their rules are as far as what uh, uh, qualifies for a grass-fed animal. I'm guessing, like you said, it would be all grass all their life, never, never grain fed. And uh, I do know it takes a little longer to get those animals to harvest. Mm -hmm. 
Well, now, like in like in your case, you've got you've got Angus cow. You see, you got about six hundred mother cows uh, around that, and then you got twelve thousand acres. Now, that's one big difference because if you get into some areas of Virginia or Missouri or somewhere, they think they're just going to have a cow per acre almost, and and <laughs> you, your your cows got to travel a little bit more to get a meal. Apparently, they do. Right? It takes twenty acres to run one cow calf pair. Per, per year here, and uh, you get in states like Arizona, New Mexico, that number goes way up. Uh, it's, you know, I've, I've heard 40, 50, 60 acres per cow. Yeah, type me, place. me too. Yeah. That's, a, that's a lot. Now, one thing I wonder about, there's been, there's been some more tension about uh, like savory and other programs that are, that are really drawing attention to constructive grazing and how, uh, grazing, whether you're on the 20 acres, can actually um, improve the soil, build up richness, richness in the soil, and also even sequester sequester carbon from grazing them. Right now, I'm wondering, are are you are you moving your cows more to graze them down to certain levels, or how do you how do you move them and try to take advantage to get the the most out of your grazing operation? The terrain comes into play on most places with. Uh, the ability to do that savory system that you're talking about, the, the smaller paddocks. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of canyons here, and it's it's not very practical to to split the pastures up and, and uh, have all those water gaps. But we have rotated our pastures. Uh, well, that Dad did that. Uh, he, he started managing his place in 1953, 54, and he has always rotated the pastures. So, Kind of the rule is take half, leave half, and uh, you leave a good root system in place when you move into the next pasture. And we always let those grass plants seed out at least once a year. And you take care of your your grass, take care of your place like that. It'll take care of you. Can you tell when you're like going by a ranch that's not doing it right from the ones that are doing it right? Yes, sir. It's (laughs) it's pretty easy to see you. Uh, those places that are overgrazed, uh, as you're, and you can tell them when you're going up and down the highway, they will lose their their tall and mid plant populations. It'll be all short grass, short grass or short grass combined with a lot of broomweed. You, you see that in our country. Yeah, but yeah, you you can tell. I want to stick with the cows a little bit more before we get back to the organization. And, and and I assume you're doing you're doing things that they weren't doing on the ranch. I mean, I did see something that you're using DNA information and so forth. On can you explain that? Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing how the technology has changed since uh, since I've been alive out here. When we first moved to the ranch, I was six months old. There wasn't even a phone system out here. Uh, my dad and the neighboring rancher had to put their own phone system in. It was one of those old crank, yeah, crank phones. And uh, we put a put a line into their house, which was about five miles, and then put another line in from their house into town, another six miles, where they could communicate. You fast forward to today, like you say, I'm using DNA technology where I know down to the percent how each one of my females rank against all animals tested. So anytime you have a number to work with, you can improve on that number. It uh, allows me, I, uh, 
what I'm describing that is it's like if you went to buy a new pickup truck and you bought one solely based on the color. And that's what you're doing if you're just looking at outward appearance. This DNA technology allows me to look under the hood and see what size engine it's got, what kind of a transmission's in there. And I can get that animal that's more suited to my environment. And I'm working with traits uh, such as carcass. Uh, Prime is my main target because I excel on a grid, but I also raise replacement heifers. So those maternal traits are very important to me also. So can you identify like a gene? Because in humans that do that, they can go in and say, you might even be um, predisposed to a certain illness or something. And they can tell you've got such and such a gene. Now, can you do that on cattle genes and, you know, and say they're more likely to finish a prime than, uh, than if they don't have this other gene? Yes. Uh, first thing you mentioned were, were health traits, and they're actually working on those. But right now, the traits I have to, to, to work with and, and uh, talking about those that have to do with a good eating experience, uh, such as marbling, ribeye, and there's one for tenderness. And I have spent a lot of time working on those. Uh, I want to create uh, a good eating experience for all the consumers. So we try to develop to develop every calf as it w- if it was going to be served at our own table. So I pay good attention to the to the marbling. Um, as your listeners probably know, the marbling has to do with how it grades. Uh, the better the marbling, the higher the grade. The highest grade that you can get is prime. National average is about 9%. I've actually had groups that have gone up to 82% prime by using this method. And you haven't really changed the feeding program? You've done that just with genetics? Um, might have tweaked it some. Uh, we, we feed commodities, which uh, most ranchers feed cubes. Uh, the commodities, we can tweak the rations if something's, you know, environmentally has changed, such as a drought, uh, it rained a lot or the, the, the grass isn't quite as stout. Uh, we can make tweaks in there. But by and large, we've always given the cattle what they need. So it's, it's mainly genetics. Yeah. Uh, stress-free handling, uh, we, we try to handle them easy. Uh, that that plays into it too, but just just making sure they're in, on a good nutrition plan uh, when they need to work. Now, do you take your calves into feedlots? Yes, I retain ownership all the way through, and that's one reason why I, during the the rough financial times and drought times, I've been able to survive because I get bonuses for. For things by selling on the grid. So I will, I will uh, wean them. I'll go through that stalker phase we talked about earlier on, on my ranch. I'll do that myself. And then I'll take it to a, a feed yard. I use Cattleman's Choice up uh, in northern Oklahoma for that. And we feed for quality. So we're uh, going to sell on a grid and I get paid bonuses for every prime I have. Uh, Bonus is prime over choice. Do all the cattle in that feedlot get the same rations, though? They'll have different rations depending on what phase of the feeding they're in. But uh, I, yes, I think uh, uh, that most of them are on the same 
they're on the same starter ration. You know, if it's that phase, uh, midway through, they'll be on the same thing. And then when they're finishing up, they'll be on the same thing. So that's really where the proof is with whether or not the track and the genetics are making a difference. I mean, you already got something going for you with the breed because uh, Angus uh, recognizes the, the black cattle. Uh, I've always been kind of respected for, for finishing pretty well. And there was concerns with other breeds that kind of had a hard time measuring up to them. So you already got an edge with the breed, maybe. But then if you're, you're adding the genetics, because if they're going into the feedlot and you get a premium for prime and they're all getting the same feed pretty much, uh, then that gets back to how important that genetic stage is then. Yes, yes, it is. And uh, now if I just concentrated on that alone, uh, I could probably get a higher percent prime. But speaking earlier, uh, if you remember, there's 17 different traits in that DNA test. And I've got to to balance those out where I can have good replacement heifers, too. I've got to be concerned with uh, things like milk, uh, heifer pregnancy, mature weight. All those things factor into a successful operation. If I just uh, concentrated on the carcass traits, it would be like single trait selection. I would do really good there for a while, but the other traits would go by the wayside. But uh, it, you pick your most important traits. You can't correct everything at once. And once you get the main ones kind of in the range that you, you, you want them, then you start branching out to those that you placed a less priority on and can start working on those too. Yeah, well, that's exciting. It's exciting. Now, I, I guess one other thing, too. I mean, if, if you or me want to go get our DNA tested, it, it costs a little bit. And uh, somehow they must be able to, what, they just draw blood to come out and you pull some blood on the cow and 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 kick that back to you a lot cheaper than if you did it for yourself? You, you can do that that way. You can uh, pull hair. Uh, strands of hair will give the same result. I actually take a tissue sample. It's a, a hole punch. And... Uh, Punches a small hole in their ear, and and I double that up. We've got to put an ear tag in anyway, so yeah. I'll use the hole for a, a pilot hole for an ear tag, which uh, was going to happen anyway. Man, that tell you what, that's interesting. Now, are you still using bulls? Or are you AI in most everything? We uh, were AI in pretty well everything. Um, that's that AI enabled me to move forward a lot faster uh, because I could I could look at the traits and I could put my parameters that I wanted my animals to be at least this in each one of those traits. And if they weren't, I would circle that number and I'd select an AI bull to complement that and bring them up in those traits. I've done that for around 10 years now and made uh, a lot of good progress, but we've just switched up our operation because we've We've pretty well taken care of all the low-hanging fruit right now. Uh, those advances that I can make like that are, are smaller and smaller. So I have bought some some really good bulls, and I, I look at those bulls, and, and I'll circle the traits that they're especially strong in or especially weak in. And since I have the DNA information on my cows, I can put the cows in with them that complements them where they can, they can do their best job genetically with this group of cows. 
And I'll separate them out right after calving. So they're already in those calving bunches. And socially, the calves are who they're going to be with from then to when they're weaned at an early age. So there's no there's no social adjustment. You, you know, if you were a new kid going to a school in junior high, there will be a little stress involved with that. Well, I, same way with calves. When they go in with a new group, a uh, little bit of that going on, they've got to establish who's who's on top. And uh, this way, that's already done. They don't have to have to go through that. Those wean calves, they used to call them ballers, right? Because they ball. Yes, sir. <laughs> ballers. They, <laughs> you know, we ought to also mention the acronym AI because any more people might be suspecting that you're getting chat GPT doing it for you because it's a, <laughs> but we all, you always talk about artificial insemination and now it's artificial intelligence. I, I, yes. I don't understand either one of them as well as I should, but <laughs> I wonder if the other AI might have something to do with the way we're raising, raising cattle in the future. And when, you know, we figure how are you going to apply artificial intelligence at some point and then whether some of that research that's being funded by the Cattlemen's Beat Board someday will incorporate some uh, artificial intelligence into it. Oh, Roger, I, I can't help but think that it is. Uh, I believe that uh, artificial intelligence is already in the farming world. Uh, so it's it's having to do with the, the feed that's being produced for our cattle. And uh, they'll find new applications for that, that that technology moving forward where someday it uh, it will be involved in our industry. Let's switch back over to the organizations for a minute. So what do they do to help you? I mean, when you talk about doing both research and promotion and you've got activities at the at the state beef councils in each state and you've got them going on at the national program and you've got subcontracting organizations and you're supporting work at land grant universities and other places. Try to help me paint a picture of the range of things that are being funded from, from this checkoff program. Roger, that list is very lengthy. I guess I'll, I'll move to, to some of the ones that uh, are, are my favorites. Uh, you know, every, and, and that's, uh, I mentioned our diverse board while ago when I was talking. We're diverse in ideas too. It, uh, someone else's board member's favorites is going to be different than mine. Uh, two or three things that uh, I think are very important to our industry. I'll lead off with the issues management team that we've got in place. That team, they've got approximately six to seven people that monitor uh, media 24-7 for anything coming out about beef, um, whether it be misinformation, something negative. If it is misinformation, they can get a press release out there that corrects it immediately instead of letting that half-truth grow legs and, and take off. But, uh, they also, if uh, we had a disease outbreak, such as the BSE outbreak in 2003, they can be right on top of that. Uh, you know, when that happens, people are very concerned with the safety of, uh, of food. And uh, our people can get the right information out there to them. So uh, uh, relieve that worry a little bit and, and get that accurate information to them. Another thing that uh, another project that we do is uh, go to high population states with some of our dollars. Uh, the, the Northeast for instance, they have around 
72 million people there. There's uh, 14 people for every cow in that area of the country. You take a state like uh, Nebraska, there's four cows for every person. You know, same with Kansas, Oklahoma, the Dakotas. We'll take some of those daughters from those high population cow states and ship them up to that Northeast where we can spend dollars educating both consumers, uh, health professionals, nutritionists about beef, uh, the nutritional value of beef, uh, you know, how important it is for their diet. Um, that, go ahead. I mean, those, those, I want to stop you there for a second, but I, I mean, those are great, great examples. Uh, and, and it strikes me as you were speaking about the number of people in the Northeast and how they, the ratio of people to cows are so much different than it is out, out West, um, that recently there's been some of those metro areas that were setting priorities of eliminating beef from, from school systems. And it was happening at about the same time at the COP program over in the, in the Middle East and the environmental to go in the other direction and really saying that, no, we need livestock. We need livestock grazing. Cattle do have a role. We don't need to be phasing out cattle production. And I thought, wait a minute. And, this is happening at this almost exactly the same time that we had our side of the world. There's some areas saying that thinking that they got to cut back on beef consumption because of environmental concerns. And then the environmental group itself saying, no, it's a matter that they get more efficient. And it strikes me, Jimmy, that those reports coming out of the United Nations and so forth that were pretty positive are saying they need to have more people ranching like you do. Uh, applying technology, getting the production, producing more for less, because it's not so much how many cattle there are. It's kind of, it's kind of how many pounds of beef or or dairy or something that you're you're getting for what amount of methane might might still be getting into the atmosphere. So it's a it's a it's an interesting time, and I can see how you got to have somebody at that table. Right, uh, right. Uh, I, I wish uh, the the other side would listen. To- to the positive part of that information that they're putting out now, but that's some of the misinformation that we battle with these uh, checkoff dollars. Uh, the United Nations uh, had a number of like 14% is what uh, uh, cattle contributed to the environmental footprint. And uh, that's a worldwide number. If you take the cattle in the U.S., our cattlemen have done such a good job making them efficient. The actual number in the United States is 2.6%. You add transportation in, and that uh, makes it 3.9%. So it's way less than some of these these groups use to try to attack the beef industry. Uh, you notice here in the United States, they'll use that UN number of 14%, and that's just, it's just not right. Also, we, we talk about upcycling. There's 70% of the land in the U.S. that is is unfit to raise food for human consumption. They just won't raise vegetables. Out here, my topsoil in places is like an inch thick. You, you can't grow crops on it. But ruminants such as cattle can utilize that animal and turn it into a, a great protein source for people to eat. That's some of the things, these uh, information, these checkoff dollars uh, work toward 
correcting that in misinformation that's coming from groups that might not necessarily like us. You know, it if I got this right, maybe a hundred years before your family started ranching, we had about as many uh, ruminants roaming the roaming that country as we do today, or maybe maybe more with uh, the buffalo herds that uh, versus the cow herd, and we we're a whole lot more productive with the cow herds. Right, right, and they can be managed so much better than those uh, those buffalo herds that ran ran in the, the thousands. Is how many were in a herd, and uh, they were actually destructive to some parts of the land. Here we can get. Uh, Farmers and ranchers can get the correct number of animals in the right places. And uh, if you rotate grazing, like we, we talked about earlier, uh, we can help the land. You know, there's so much that can be done to be out there on the issues emerging. But I would imagine that the range includes some of the old-fashioned things, too, is back when this checkoff program started and you have beef what's for dinner and is reminding people that it tastes good and it's easy to fix and it's good for you and so forth. But I imagine they're still doing some of that, right? There's still some promotion, just reminding people of recipes and 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 how much the family likes beef. In addition to dealing with these cutting edge issues, you bet. There, there's uh, uh, several websites associated with uh, with the beef checkoff and and beef in general. And one of those is uh, the the phrase you mentioned, beef. It's what's for dinner. Dot com and. Uh, you can find re multiple recipes for about anything that you'd like to, to cook with beef there. And it not only has recipes, it has uh, nutritional information. Uh, it's got heart-healthy diets, if, you've, uh, if that's a concern for you. It's got information about uh, uh, upcycling that I talked about. Just about anything you want to find about beef is on that website. You know, it's a it's an interesting time too because you talk about health issues. I feel like there's less emphasis and concern about uh, animal proteins. Animal proteins are being supported, whereas there's less talk about about just cholesterol because there's other issues now. And and uh, maybe I'm getting enough older that I'm I'm hearing so much more about trying to pay attention to your protein. And we kind of went through a stage where people said, "Well, we may eat too much protein." And now we're kind of going through another stage where people said, you know what, uh, you need protein. If you hope to have a health span and stay, stay healthy uh, longer, um, you're be getting enough protein. And it's pretty much going to have a lot of what's got to come from animal protein. Right. And, and beef is one of the best proteins you can get. You, 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 you compare it to, uh, to uh, say, uh, peanut butter. Uh, you, you need like six and a half tablespoons of, of peanut butter to add uh, to to equal what uh, like uh, one serving of beef would would be. So you've got to eat a lot more of the other protein to equal what you can get in a small serving with beef. You know what's funny? You mentioned that because that just showed up on on my um, emails this morning from somebody. I don't know who it was. It was. Pushing peanut butter as an alternative. I don't have anything against peanut butter, but um, <laughs> it, it, it's just funny you mention that. Now I want to kind of get back onto the, a little bit on the broader picture and pull us pull us together. Uh, okay. Because if we uh, 
So you've got these funds raised because, and we didn't mention this part, but there was a referendum initially that all the people could vote whether or not they wanted a program like this. And so mm-hmm. Congress had really enabled the industry to more or less tax itself to get this assessment to do these programs. Now, the caveat had always been that we don't want you using that money to uh, influence legislation. but. Right. But as far as information, factual-based information promotion, you can use the money for that. But then your board was formed, and you subcontract with other groups, or there's operating committees and others. Could you explain that that connection there? Because if you're getting the funds, and then what are some of the groups that you're able to give funds to that they carry out portions of the program? Well, you're exactly right. Uh, None of our dollars are spent on policy. There's groups that we contract with that do have policy divisions, but that is completely separate from the part of their organization that contracts with us for checkoff projects. Um, the 50 cents that comes to Cattlemen's Beefport, that amounted to around $42 million last year. Uh, if you take out the administrative cost, which we can't go over 5%, as far as administrative costs, we're that's capped by law. So we had a little under $38 million to work with for our projects last year. We had $49 million in projects that were put before us. So we have an operating committee that uh, sorts that out. We had to, to cut some of those projects out completely. We had uh, to to pare down some others to get under our our budget cap. That operating committee is uh, consists of 20 members. 10 come from our board and 10 come from uh, the Federation of State Beef Councils, which is those state beef councils that collects the dollars. They have an organization where they're, they've gone together and they pick 10 members from that side. So we have a 20 member committee. And uh, we look at all those projects. The, the contractors uh, come pre- present. Um, I don't know that I can, can name them all, but some of them will be American Farm Bureau Foundation, uh, United States Meat Export Federations, uh, NCBA, United States Cattlemen's Association, uh, North American Meat Institute. Uh, there's, there's nine of those. And they'll come up with projects They'll bring those projects before that committee and they will present that project. And once they present, the committee members can ask them questions about it. Uh, And uh, before that, let me back up before that, we'll have an industry convention, a summer business meeting, uh, typically in July, where uh, those uh, organizations are part of that, Cattlemen's Beef Board and Federation of State State Beef Councils will have their representatives there. Each has approximately 100 members that participate. There's six program committees. We'll divide up. We'll we'll have uh, about uh, 16 of our members on each one of those six committees. The Federation will have 16 of their members on each one of those committees. And so everybody on the board has input. They'll listen to those presentations there before they get to the operating committee and they'll make suggestions. And uh, from those suggestions, these contractors will make tweaks in their program 
before it's presented to the operating committee for final funding. You know, if if you get any criticism at all, some of the criticism that I think gets out there, people that are worried that organizations that do lobby, uh, like the Farm Bureau, like the National Cattlemen's, uh, you know, uh, some of these, some of these other, uh, the American Meat Institute, certainly with mm-hmm. representing Packers, that they uh, they get upset about it and they worry that there won't be. Um, a fence between what these folks are doing on the policy side and carrying out a program. How do you answer those critics? So uh, there's a firewall in place uh, between the the two sides of that organization. Uh, they'll have their policy side and they'll have the, the part that's the contractor to the checkoff. Now, some of their personnel will be full time on, on either side, but you do have some personnel that might work both sides. And it's like a lawyer uh, keeping track of his time. He has different clients. And uh, if he spends 15 minutes on work for this client, he'll he'll uh, bill that 15 minutes over here. They break that down like that. And so their time spent on the checkoff is all that comes over on the checkoff side. And that that is audited. Uh, we have uh, our CFO looks at that and uh, compares the work done with uh, uh, the the time spent on it compared to the work done. Make sure that matches up. Not only he audits that, uh, USDA looks at it. Uh, We're audited by them. And then we have independent auditors that come in uh, once a year and and audit us as as, uh, a whole. And all those those, uh, financials, Audited financials can be found on our website, drivingdemandforbeef.com. So all those projects are also on there. So if anybody is wanting to know anything about those projects or uh, anything about our organization, that's a very good place to go look. Uh, We've got it all on there. But uh, we, like you say, by law, we can't have anything to do with policy. Uh, Another one of our rules, we, we... what we say has to be accurate, and that's monitored by USDA. So USDA is looking over everything that we put out in print, uh, anything that goes on that website, and making sure that what we say there is accurate. And I would, anybody that uh, might have a concern, I would certainly encourage them to go to that website, drivingdemandforbeef.com, and see for yourselves. Well, you're saying it just at the right time, because I was going to ask you to start telling people where they can look for information. Say that again. Drivingdemandforbeef.com. Okay. So now that I think that as it affects people that got cattle and they're going to be checking off, is is there a periodic referendum that they'll have an opportunity that they ever have an opportunity to vote again on whether they want to continue the program or not? It's not a periodic one, but it can be called at any time. Uh, when our organization was formed, it took 10 years to get to where we could have a checkoff, 10 years and free referendums. Uh, it was part of the 1985 Farm Bill, as, as you referenced before. When that, uh, when that passed, uh, uh, that was the act, and that directed uh, USDA to come up with an order. So the order happened in 86. 
seven, I believe, and that's when we had a referendum. Referendum passed by 79% back then. But an important part of that was that if producers felt that the, the checkoff wasn't doing its job and it went gone down a wrong road, there was a kill switch there that if at any time 10% of the producers think that that's the case, they can call for a referendum. In fact, uh, a couple of years ago, that was tried and uh, they didn't come any, the, the people that were, were wanting a referendum didn't get anywhere close to the 10%. You know, I have to mention too, I, I guess the organic, some uh, organic, are they, they included even if they're organic cattle production? Yes, but uh, they're, they're, they're actually uh, uh, exempt from they it. They're, yes. So it, now do you have to be like certified organic? Because I mean, it, it's potential for somebody to say, I, I follow the standards, but uh, but they may not technically be a certified organic. Uh, that's right. And Roger, I, I can't answer that, what that definition is, but I know that they... I kind of wonder about that. Um, because there's a, a lot of more and more organic farmers that are of, and including some on the on the livestock side too, so that's part of it. But if you're not and you and and you want say if you're farming now, and 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 you'd like to be able to have a say or maybe get involved. I mean, how could they how could they follow your track? How could they end up being on the on a board someday or on one of these committees? Um, and or either you want yourself to be on it, or you know somebody you really want to get involved and have a say in what's decided. How can that happen? Uh, I guess I, the advice I get is don't be shy. Let somebody know that you are interested. Uh, each state is different in in what kind of nominating organizations they have. My state has five different nominating organizations. And we have five seats on uh, cattle and speed board. So it works out pretty good. But there's some states that have up to 17 different nominating organizations, which they've got to figure out uh, uh, who they're going to put on the board. And uh, with those 17 nominating organizations, they might only have four spots there. But the easiest way would be contact one of those, either somebody that's involved with cattle and speed Board or one of those nominating organizations uh, within your state, and those are listed on the USDA website, and, and that's probably the best way to go. Get in touch with one of those, express your interest, and uh, uh, see if uh, see where they take it from there. Well, now, Jimmy, I just want to wrap up with maybe a question that you've been there, done that you've, you've run a ranch. You still got your ranch in Oklahoma you got your cattle program. You're doing a lot of interesting things and you've had this tour of duty. Uh, you, you stepped up and, and, and did a job as, as chairman. And now as you're going, you're going to look at that in the rear view mirror. Now, what do you take away from it? Uh, kind of, um, what's, Kind of the most meaningful part of the experience you've gone through, and what, if anything, gives you some reason to be optimistic about the next 10 years for people that are in the cattle industry? You know, it, it, uh, I've served on various boards throughout my lifetime. I probably started on boards in my late 20s. Uh, and at uh, different ages, probably the reason for doing that would be different. When I was younger, I just wanted to get involved. Um, 
as I progressed on in those organizations, it was about having a seat at the table, which is very important. And that's why I would encourage everyone to get involved in, in a, a board somehow, uh, to, to have that seat at the table, give your ideas. Uh, uh, and then as, as I've gotten a little older, uh, it's been uh, to give back. Uh, the beef industry has been very good to, to my family and myself, and it's a way I can I can give back. Uh, I guess what I would take away is uh, it's been such an honor to, to be able to serve like that. And uh, it, it's one of those boards, Roger, you, you get on, you look to the left, you look to the right, and you see the quality of people that are there. And by the way, they're all volunteers. They're taking time away from their operations to be up there and do that. They don't get paid. But I look left, look right, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'm going to have to really work to keep up with these people. It's just, just great people here. But uh, it just, I guess my takeaway, just been such an honor to be associated with with uh, these people, the, the, the staff that's involved with this, uh, some of the greatest people you'll meet and uh, to, to give back to the industry. Well, you have, and, and I think that this industry is gonna owe you a thank you. And I think that they are honored to have had you give that time and effort. And and uh, I always appreciate seeing people step up and you've stepped up. And I think we we all should join in and, and thanking for the leadership you provided. And And I think also with our conversation here today, some of the inspiration you're providing to some folks listening that kind of remind them that maybe it's time for them to step up, wherever in the segment of the industry they're in, kind of jump in and realize more is done when you can work together and contribute to your industry and help your industry grow than if you just sat at home and complain about it. Right, right. And I would encourage everybody to, to get involved somewhere, whether it's with this organization or their, their cattlemen's groups back home. Uh, Farm Bureau has some some great great organization countywide, statewide. Just just get involved. It it's gonna it takes all of us to to make our industry as good as it can be. Jimmy Taylor, you've done a great job and appreciate what you've done for agriculture and for the industry. And I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk today. Roger, thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 